We're going to read our, our passage this morning. We've been in Luke's gospel for the past Seems like forever. And, and this passage this morning comes from 1 Timothy. And so if you have a Bible, they should be on, on the side of your pews if you need one. Uh, or you can pull up your phone because this is 2022 uh, and it'll be on the screen as well. This comes from Paul's letter. Uh, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this, I appointed a herald. I was appointed a herald and an apostle. And some translations put this in parentheses. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I love that. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Let's pray together with the preaching of God's word. God, we invite you into this space, knowing that you will do a good work within our hearts and our souls and our minds, God. God, shape us and form us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight and in your sight alone. Oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We give you all honor, praise, and glory. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, I'll give you a little bit of uh, an update about me or who I am. I am the pastor at, at Wesley Foundation and, and here, but also I'm a musician. Some of you don't know that about me. Um, that was actually my first calling into ministry and still part of it. Uh, I, because the band had to leave, we have to do a song at the end. <laughs> I'm going to lead it. Um, try not to judge. But music has been a huge piece of my life. Now, I was born 1987, and that seems young to a lot of you in the room. It's okay, totally fine. I was born in 1987, which meant that when I was coming into my formative years, the Christian music was really taking off on the radio. I grew up in Central Florida in DeLand. There's a, a very popular radio station, Z88.3. Uh, so if you're ever in Central Florida, just tune your dials to Z88.3. Uh, and, and tons of Christian music that I heard every single day was very formative for me as I was growing up. In fact, uh, a lot of how I view Christ, I think, comes from the reading of Scripture and some of the songs that I heard. I think that's probably in intentional in all of our worlds. That's the same with hymns, amen? The same with praise and worship music. Amen. There was a song on the radio uh, that I had to go back and look up because I was wanting to make sure that I remembered it right by a group named Avalon. I think they still exist, but they were popular then. They had a real big hit called Testify to Love. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, this is like 1999-ish. And they had a song called In Not Of, and I remembered it very clearly. So when I was reading this text, it came, came to my mind, and I, I want to read you the lyrics to the chorus. Come take the light to darker parts, share his truth with hardened hearts. We are not like the world, but we can love it. Come bring the hope to hopeless men until the lost are found in him. He came to save the world, so let us be in it, not of it. 
The bridge says, we've cursed the darkness far too long. We need to hold the candle high. We have to go and right the wrongs. We need to touch the world with love, with his love. It's called in, not of. And that phrase, I remember when I was growing up, very popular in Christian culture. We are in the world, but not of the world. And I heard that, I mean, do you remember the 90s? Christian apparel was huge. How many, how many companies had their logo knocked off on a t-shirt, right, with some sort of Christian writing on it? I mean, this was huge. And I remember this on Christian apparel. I remember blogs being named after them. Remember blogs? I remember blogs being named after them. I used to have these little toys they called pogs that were like these little, I don't know, circles that you would stack and you would throw something on them and they would, and I had Christian pogs. I thought it was the coolest thing, right? Had Bible verses on it because they'll Christianify anything. And uh, I remember one of them said, in, not of. Now that, that phrase, we're in the world, not of the world, is not necessarily specifically in scripture. It, it's not. Now it comes from uh, a few different passages and we kind of piece it together, but that phrase exactly as it stands is not specifically in scripture. It comes from John's gospel, primarily the 17th chapter, where Jesus talks about them not being in the world or of the world because I'm not of the world. And so we started to develop this duality in our minds of and not of. That duality is what I want to talk about this morning. We have been formed in our minds to have to decide between being in the world or of the world. And we've been invited to think about it as being one or the other. And the truth is that phrase actually deals with the tension, right? But if you think about the practical ways in which we have grown up, the practical ways in which we've understood being a Christian in the world, we're having to decide between being in the world and of the world. And there's a few different ways in which that's been very complicated in our history. Uh, a couple of questions, and, and some of these will have you know, opinions attached to them. But some of the questions that we have to deal with, one of the biggest questions, should Christians be involved in politics? You heard that before? The question of should Christians be involved in politics? I had an ethics professor in seminary who would tell you no, absolutely not. He says no. And he says the reason is, is because Jesus is what he calls an alternative politics. It's not that Jesus wasn't political but he was an alternative to the ways of the world. You see the tension of the in and not of, right? But we know very well, and we have to be very transparent here, we know very well the ways in which Christians currently do and have influenced politics and legislature, right? From really the beginning, sometimes in really good ways and sometimes in really damaging ways. But there's been this tension, this question, should Christians be involved in politics? Or should Christians be involved in the ongoings of society or the rule writing of society? And as much as I loved seminary and loved my ethics professor, sometimes I don't know if he's exactly right because I don't know if it's fully practical because there are a lot of injustices that happen in our society, our legal society, our political society. And I do think Christians and scripture have something to say about that. 
Sometimes that's very controversial, but it's true. Trinity, as a church, supports an organization in town called CAJUM, Capital Area Justice Ministry. And CAJUM is meant, it's a DART organization, and it's meant to provide pressure to elected officials. This is not involved in the, the voting process, the political process, but elected officials, people who have sworn to protect us and our community and pressure them into doing things that are scriptural, doing things that are of justice, righting injustices. And if you have um, never experienced that, we have several Cajun groups that are actually doing some house sessions uh, throughout uh, the next couple of months, really, as they start to prepare for some of their events. And so if you're interested in getting involved in that, would love to have you there. But that is an example of an organization that works within society. In other words, it's not just saying, hands off, we're Christians, we live somewhere else, right? Getting involved in society, asking the question, should Christians be involved in that? Professor of mine, another professor of mine in seminary called ordination, that, that means the becoming of clergy in the church, a set-apart ministry. And if you think about the ways clergy have been treated, uh, the question of awesome, uh, are clergy of the world? Well, they're in the world, but they're of the world. Are they of the church or of the world? Where, where's the tension there? One of the ways this comes about in our lives <laughs> in a conversation over a text message, which is always super fun, uh, between a couple of friends of mine is the wearing of clergy collars. And we're Methodists. Not very many of us wear clergy collars and, and the clergy, but sometimes they do. And uh, it's become a joke that if I see a pastor of ours, uh, a friend of ours on Facebook or something, he has a picture or she has a picture of a clergy collar. I send it to my friend uh, Chris, who hates that. I mean, he just hates it. He has some sort of I don't understand it. He just hates it. And I was like, ha Chris is probably crying right now. And so I asked him, I was like, you know, because I do see there being value in the clergy collar because Will Willimon says that we're a set apart ministry. Clergy are, are set apart. So I think there is a way in which you can visually set yourself apart. That's a, okay. And he's like, but Jesus was incarnational. He's like, Jesus needs to be on the ground with the people. He, he doesn't need to be. So, and I was like, well, yeah, but he was up on the mountain while they were listening. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, there is a set of, but there's a tension here between whether we are of the world or of the church. How do we live in the end, not of? I face this a lot in college ministry. Um, a question of whether 18 to 22-year-olds, but really it goes beyond that, should date non-believers? I can't tell you how many times I get this question. Like, I fell in love with this person in my physics course, but I don't know if I should date them because they're, they're an openly an atheist or they don't believe. And um, you may be familiar with the term missionary dating. Uh, pretty toxic idea, but the idea is like, well, if I date them, then like maybe they'll change, uh, which is probably listening to, you know, not your head. <laughs> There's a question of like, can I live in the world and not be of the world? Can I be of the church but also of the world, because I really love this person. If we're being completely transparent, I think most people's take on this story has to do with their own personal lives. Because I've seen plenty of families whose one of the partners 
falls away from the faith, they still love that person. They're going to stop being married to that person. They're not going to stop dating that person. But there's a tension there between in and out. One of the bigger questions that's asked, particularly in our church right now, I mean right now, this is a big moment in the life of the United Methodist Church, is whether Christians should read Scripture in light of culture. The fancy word for that, fancy seminary word, you can take this and I don't know, make $20 sometime, is hermeneutic. That's the lens in which we read the scripture. And a lot of the accusations that are being thrown around is like, well, you know, we don't, we want the scripture to exist as scripture. We want the world to exist as world. And so we need to keep those completely separate. But the truth is, if we're being totally transparent, totally honest, is we have never, ever, ever done that. There's an entire book of the New Testament called Philemon that can at least be read as passive approval of slavery. In fact, I was watching, I shouldn't admit this in church, I was watching Bill Maher on Friday night, (laughs) and he was talking about how slavery has been the rule, not the exception. And yet there's scripture that has backed that up. But of course, in today's world, we would never, at least in this modern world, I mean, across the world for sure, but at least in the United States right now, we would never... I want to say this strongly, never entertain that idea, even though it might be passively approved within a scriptural context. We have, we can't just read it for the text because you can't go into a conversation with somebody and leave the world that you lived behind because you step into a conversation with somebody and you're carrying all the baggage carrying all the things. Scripture can still speak a big truth to us. In the United Methodist Church, uh, we have a, a concept some of you may be familiar with called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. But the idea is that we can interpret God's will for us through Scripture, the tradition of the church, our own personal experience, and reason and logic. In other words, I can start to piece together or nuance my reading of this or my understanding of the practical applications of it through what we call the quadrilateral. And so the question becomes, do we read just scripture as it exists or does culture form scripture or does scripture inform culture? Do you see the tension that's been drawn here? And we we have been asked in so many ways in so many different parts of our society to have to choose. One or the other. The problem with that is that the divided society that we're living in right now is not that different than the divided society that this passage was written to, 1 Timothy. This is one of the pastoral letters, meaning that they're trying to set up the church for success in the future here. And About the time, this is a little bit before, the letter's written a little bit before this, but about the time that the letter is being written, I want to tell you what was happening contextually and culturally within the Jewish people and the Jewish Christian people. There existed a temple 
And the temple had been overrun once already, but in 70 CE, or AD if you want to use that, in 70 CE, the Romans sacked or sieged really all of Jerusalem because they were very worried about the political aspects of what was happening there, and they took down the temple. Now, the temple was the centerpiece of life. It it was literally the centerpiece of the spiritual life. It was the centerpiece of the economy, and they took it down. They sieged it, and if you were lucky enough to be a Jew or a Jewish Christian, Christian, if you were lucky enough to survive that siege, then you were not in Jerusalem in large part. We we later called it the diaspora, where they scattered to a bunch of different places. It reminds me so much of what happened when Russia started invading Ukraine. Because if you remember, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians just started going wherever they could. United States, Germany, wherever. They were searching for a safe place. The same thing happened then. And it's not long after that, that this passage is written. And he says at the top of it, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for everyone for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. There's a couple ways to read this. Having been controlled by Rome, I doubt that the people reading this would have had a lot of grace and compassion in their hearts for the kings and all the ruling ones in high positions, as the text says. So there is a practical aspect of this. I urge you to pray for them so that you're safe. But it seems to me like a rejection of this duality that we've been told we have to choose because it's not reality. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions so that they may lead a quiet quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. His next sentence is really interesting. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, he's saying if you pray for those who lead you, whether they are of the church or of the world, if you pray for those who lead you, this is right and acceptable. This is good, and in some translations, they use the word holy, to follow God. When you're being invited in our culture to choose one or the other and being told that that's the way that truth has to exist, and what I might suggest is what he's saying here is there is a way to live in the in-between. In other words, there's a way to live in, not of. And the first thing he says is to pray for our leaders. I had a pastor, mentor of mine, when I served a a church for a summer in Charlotte. Now, he wasn't the senior pastor, but he was my direct 
supervisor. I was a lowly intern. I got the, wall, the office with no windows, you know. And uh, he did the prayers of the people at service every week. It was a traditional service. And he, in full robe, instead of praying at the lectern, as we often do upstairs, he walked down to the kneeling rails and prayed the prayers of the people from the kneeling rails, which is memorable. I loved that. But I think one of the things I remember most is that every week, without fail, he prayed for the leaders, the mayor of Charlotte, the county leaders, the governor of North Carolina. And I remember at the time, he prayed for Barack Obama. It was very controversial. But he prayed and used his name for Barack Obama. And I was stunned by that. Why? Because Paul says to pray. All intercessions, prayers, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. The last portion of this passage, I think, is a kicker for me. Because he, he knows how difficult it is to try to live in the world but not of the world. He knows how difficult it is to try to live in the in-between. I would even say he probably knows how unpractical it is. So he says, start with prayer. And then he goes in to an example, the greatest example of the one who shows us that road, the mediator between God and humanity. He's Jesus Christ. None of this makes living life any easier. None of this makes our decision-making any easier. And you're going to have to find those choices day to day side those things, but I might invite you to, one, start with prayer. Pray for the leaders. I might even encourage you to pray for the ones you really don't like. And then, try to live in this in-between world in the same way that Jesus came to broken humanity and mediated on our behalf. Try to find this in between world. We're going to go into a time of prayer in a second. I do want to um, raise one prayer request to you so that you know um, this is a little bit of breaking news. But um, Jonathan Leach, who you know, many of you know, is a lay leader here, um, is having an emergency appendectomy surgery right now. Um, happened this morning. And so. We'll keep him in our prayers uh, for sure. I would also encourage you to pray um, back at the kneeling rails in a, in a moment um, and pray for our youth who are returning this week from their retreat. Uh, as I shared a couple weeks ago, it's great that they can be on retreat again, like in full force. Um, amazing. And I'm, I'm sure they had an amazing time, but also pray that, that God spoke in their hearts and will continue speaking in their hearts after they leave Bethel Place. Let's bow our heads and pray together.
Oh God, you are indeed holy and good. And we desire to follow you, to follow your paths, following your ways. God, we want to be your people. And yet we live in a world that's requiring us to either choose your way or choose the way of the world. And you have rejected that concept, duality, and instead invited us into reality where we live in here. We're not of the world, we're of you. But we live here. And we seek after you. And we want others to seek after you. And we pray for those who lead us, that they would lead us rightly, justly, and that you would speak into their heart.